Oh, yeah. Was that not a cool song? I mean, I just always, well, first of all, hello, Shoal Creek. How are you today? Yeah, you all good down here on the main row? You good? Uh, online, hello. Just want to say hello to Shoal Creek anywhere. And then uh, my new friends up in the VIP seats, up in the balcony, give me a shout. See, there's a reason they're up there, and it's not to shout, see? It's to uh, find recluse, you know, just kind of their own little uh, private space. But um, I love that song, and I love this little line from, uh, from Mr. Weezer. Uh, he says this, there's always a number that makes you feel bad. <laughs> that is like so true. What's your number? What's the number that you're tracking that Justin said earlier? That's like, it's like chasing you, and it's never quite enough, and it always makes you feel bad. For me, it was like playing baseball. I played two years of collegiate baseball. You know why I played two years? Because I was bad, and my numbers never quite, quite hit it, and, uh, and that did things to me about my self-worth. What's the number that you're tracking, that you're chasing, that always makes you feel bad? <laughs> Someone uh, offered a, a full disclosure, like, hey, it's kind of like body type, type, uh, body image type things. For someone else, it could be your GPA. For another person, it could be your child's GPA. It could be the number of likes, could be what's trending. It could be if you're in the business world, your KPIs, your key performance indicators. Who knows what it is, but there's always a number that if we're not grounded at our core, it can take us to some pretty dark places. What I think uh, Rivers Cuomo is saying here is that actually counting is failing. That when we find ourselves counting, it's going to lead to a sense of failure. Why? Because counting, number one, counting is a, a work of comparison. We're comparing ourselves to something, some measure, uh, some other person, and at the core of that actually is insecurity. You, you look at somebody else and you're comparing yourselves to them. We're coming from a place of insecurity. Insecure people compare. Insecure people count, and it's really easy to do. The second thing counting is failing is that it kind of exposes our incompleteness, our incompleteness. We just never measure up. Now, by the way, let me just say, I, I like to count. I think metrics are important. Um, while I get to uh, speak on, on occasion in, in a pastoral way, I, uh, I have a small business and I work as a consultant with companies and with leaders. And, um, and when we do goal setting, I'll always ask them, how will we know if we got there? By, 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 by what way are we measuring this? Like, it, it does help. It is important. But at the end of the day, it's, there's, there's always going to be a sense of never having measured up, never having got there right? Never having kind of fully arrived. And this is why you devise a new strategic plan. This is why you set new numbers. This is why you need more likes over social media. And so ultimately, counting just by its sheer definition will lead to an inevitable outcome or conclusion, which is failure. How do we deal with failure? How do you deal with failure. And what's the failure in your kind of maybe past or in your present that, that haunts you? Um, I woke up this morning to a text, and as a parent, I felt immediate parent fail. Earlier this week, husband fail. I was a pastor for, uh, lead pastor for 15 years, 
and um, and I the numbers that were chasing me as much as I didn't want to admit it were things like attendance, how many people were filling the room, and at first it, you know the the graph was going up and to the right, and then pretty soon it started to flatten, and then pretty soon it started to look more like a bell-shaped curve. And honestly, I didn't know what to do with that. Kind of brought me to the end of myself a little bit, to my own, the, brought me up against my own limitations. I don't know how to, how to turn that thing around. I'll give you actually a real live uh, moment. This, this, this story, uh, it's resolved in my spirit, that's why I can share it with you, but it is not resolved in circumstance. So, two and a half weeks ago, uh, I'm working with um, kind of a favorite client, but, uh, but, uh, and, and actually probably my largest, my largest client, but things aren't going well. They've gotten a little political, complicated, and my point of contact, my client, has started to ghost me, and I don't know what to do with that, and I've, I'm, I'm on the point. I've got a team and the whole thing, and, um, and I can't get this, uh, this client to, to give me a response. So, I need to keep my team updated. So, I send a voice text. You ever use on your phone voice text? Right? They're helpful for like tone. They're helpful for, you know, to give a deeper expression. And I'm a talker, if you haven't noticed. So, uh, I, I like that better than, than typing a text. So, I send to my team an internal voice text giving them an update on why my client has not responded. We're still kind of uh, on hold. And, um, and I offer, let's just call it psychoanalysis as to why I'm being ghosted. And it's probably a two-minute voice text, and I hit send only to see that what I thought was going to my team went to my client. Yeah, fail, right? Absolute fail. How do you count that? How do you count a moment like that? We, and we all have moments, right? And truly, this, 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 this moment's in real time because I'm still being ghosted. How do you count that? And, and even more deeply, how do we, you and I, when we do things like that, like what, what happens in you? Like, I toggle, and I've, I've learned this in counseling. I toggle between blame and shame. Blame. Siri, how could you let me do this? Right? I mean, seriously, it was like, I'm mad at my phone. like, ah! You're right? And then, and then I go to shame, which is, I am such a freaking idiot. And then I start working out worst-case scenarios. What do you do when you experience a moment of failure? How could we actually be, as the title of this, of this uh, talk, how could we be free to fail? How could we actually fail in, in such a way that it leads to, to growth, to maturity, to, to life and all that? How could we actually fail like uh, Winston Churchill, who said he just moved from one failure to another without a loss of enthusiasm? <laughs> Isn't that great? I think why. How do you do that? How do you do that? What do you need in order to do that? Well, let me tell you what you don't need. You don't need religion. 
Religion is a human construct by which we try to earn our way out of failure. So we're just trying to dig ourselves up out of, out of a hole. We're trying to jump through hoops. We're trying to measure ourselves in such a way that we make ourselves presentable to, uh, from a world religion perspective, whatever your God might be. And this is true whether this is the five pillars of Islam, the eightfold path of, of enlightenment for, for Buddhists, whether it's Judaism, Catholicism, Protestantism, evangelicalism, basically any ism is going to, in one way or another, develop a code by which you can earn your way to God with a constant sense of failure and never measuring up, toggling between blame and shame. And as Justin mentioned, we're in the series in Galatians. I have Galatians 3. Let me just tell you, it is a chunky passage. And the Apostle Paul, who's writing this, in the second half of the Bible, this little letter to a group of people who are starting to live their lives for Jesus. They're, they're in a region called Galatia. He writes them this letter, and he gives them this challenge. Verse 3, I think this is kind of his summary statement. And he brings it on hard. He says, are you so foolish? Galatians 3, verse 3. After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish with human effort? Are you trying to become perfect by your own human effort? I think he's teeing up the big question for you and for me and certainly for them in their time. And we need to understand a little bit of the backstory of what's going on. In fact, we need to understand a lot of the backstory. And no small whiteboard will do for this story. So here's what's going on uh, in this time. There are, there, are, uh, there are Jewish people, the people of God, who are actually coming to Jesus. And they're experiencing life in Jesus. They're, they're being um, empowered by the very Spirit of God. And all of this fruit is growing from them. Love, joy, peace, patience, and kindness. And all of these Jews are coming to Jesus. Why? Well, in part, because they're seeing that in this thing called the law, and the law would include, it's like 613 rules, it includes things like food laws and regulations, Sabbath laws, and then uh, a biggie, circumcision. And all of these things were what kind of made the cultural identity of the Jewish people. And as they're coming to Jesus, here's what they're kind of uh, reverse engineering. They're going, oh my goodness, Jesus is actually the fulfillment of the law. That, that even, and I didn't write it up here, but the temple system, the atonement system, the sacrificial system, all those things. Jesus is the Lamb of God. We no longer need to go find our own unblemished Lamb. Jesus is the one that's working on our behalf. We no longer have to work. Jesus, and, and they're seeing this completion of Jesus. Jesus actually says, look, I didn't come to uh, kick the law to the curb I came to fulfill it down to every jot and tittle. And so the Jewish people, they're like, oh my goodness, this just works. Now here's the problem. 
problem is, they and their mindset are only seeing one path to Jesus, and it's the path for them. Now, in the Hebraic or the Jewish worldview, at the largest kind of categorization, there's two groups of people. There are Jewish people, and then there are non-Jewish people, and they are called Gentiles. And Jewish people would consider Gentiles unclean. You don't enter into their home, you don't eat their food, you don't do anything with them. But guess what? Here's the problem. The problem is Gentiles are also coming to Jesus. They're coming to Jesus and they're experiencing healing and miracles, the very Spirit of God, life, fruit, joy, peace, patience, kindness. They're, they're experiencing all the same things that the Jewish people are and they're having a fit about it. They start forming church committees to figure it out. They literally do. This is, you can find all this in, in the book of Acts. Like, this is turning their world upside down. They're thinking, well, we thought this was only for us. So they, they have a church council. They have a committee. And they say, no, actually, by, by nature of the fruit, the very spirit of God, there's no favoritism in God. And so we believe that Gentiles can come to Jesus too. It was a beautiful edict, as it were. However, not everyone thought it was beautiful. There was a group called... The Judaizers. Anybody recognize the etymology of that word from Judaic, right? So now they were cool with Jesus, but they, what they weren't cool with was this end around path to Jesus. They're like, oh, no, 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 no. You got to go through the same hoops we went through. So their message to all the Gentiles and the Gentile world was, yeah, we're cool with you coming to Jesus, however... You can't just end around, right? You got to go back, and you got to go through in order to get Jesus. That means, yeah, you got to obey all the commandments. You got to obey the food regulations, the Sabbath, and it's a lot easier on your eighth day of life than your 80th day of life. This is the situation. You know what Paul, that, that's the context. You know what Paul is just saying to this? You know what the, the whole chapter three, Paul's saying? He's like, oh, hell no. Hell no. Mm-mm. And, and, and I say that specifically. He's talking to these guys. He actually goes as far. This is, I think, in chapter five. He goes, they are so wrong, they are so out of line, that if they really care about circumcision, they should just go all the way and emasculate themselves. I'm not lying. This is in the Bible. Paul is this passionate about it. And if you look at the very first verse of Galatians 3, he says this. He says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? He says later, who's cut in on you? Who's bewitched you? And that word bewitched is, what evil spirit has come upon you? Something straight from hell has done this. You were winning. You were winning. You were experiencing all the love, the life of following Jesus, and now you're going backwards and going through that? No. 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 Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. Does the cross count for anything, Paul is saying? 
If counting is failing, does the cross count in this equation as what he's saying? But he knows he's got to go deeper than that. In fact, he's got to go really deep because the power of how people identified with the law, how important that was, it had really become an idol to the Jewish people. The law was kind of everything. They considered themselves the people of the law. He knows he's got to go deep and stay down long on helping Gentiles be set free from this imposition, this obligation. And in this argument, it's... uh, from our ears, it's convoluted. It is not an easy argument to follow. So we're going to chunk it. Paul basically gives seven reasons of where the law fits in all of this and why they're not obligated to go through the law. Seven. And you're like going, oh crap, seriously, we're going to do seven? Yes, we are. We're going to go fast. It's really important you get this. Number one, Paul goes, the law was contextual. Who was it for? Jewish people. Never for Gentiles. That's number one. Do you like how fast we went through that point? Okay, number two, this gets a little deeper. Chronological, he's gonna make a chronological argument. What's that? Well, he goes, I must remind you, O Judaizers, that when Moses mediated the law for you, this wasn't the first thing in the story. What came before the law? This is the chronological argument. He goes, this man named Abraham came before the law. And Abraham gave a promise. And what was that promise in Genesis 15 and, and, and following? Well, it says right here, understand, Paul makes this argument then, that those who have faith, not going through the law, faith, are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles. Scripture could see this way in the future, that Gentiles would be able to join the game and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. And here's, here's what he said back in Genesis 15. All nations will be blessed through you. Through you. All nations. From the very beginning. I'll keep reading, then we'll, we'll whiteboard a little bit more. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Not the man of the law. He was the man of faith. What I mean is this. We're going to jump a little forward into Galatians 3. The law introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. In other words, yes, it's through the Jewish people that we receive this promise, but oh my gosh, do not forget that there would be a blessing to everyone. And this blessing comes before the law and it's found in Abraham. This is a really important argument because Paul begins his argument in Galatians 3 uh, with Abraham. He weaves Abraham through the whole argument and he finishes with Abraham. Really, really important. And you might go, okay, well then why does the law even matter at all? Paul's going to address that. Number three, all of these are in C's, seven C's. You have to be impressed. I mean, this is pastoral ninja level like alliteration here, people. Culpable culpable. The law shows us where we have fallen short. Here's what he says. Why then was the law given? It was given alongside the promise to show people where they've fallen short. Sins just means missed the mark, where they've missed the mark. We need to know that so that we're constantly aligning ourselves with the mark. Then he's going to get even 
heavier about the law. He's going to say the law is like your custodian. But by that, we mean jailer. Your jailer, the law is. Look, look how he describes this. He says, before the, ma- the way of faith in Christ was available to us, we were placed under guard by the law. We were kept in protective custody, so to speak, until the way of faith was real. He goes on to call the law our correctional officer. Uh, this translation describes it as disciplinarian. Therefore, the law was our disciplinarian until Christ came so that we might be reckoned as righteous, not by the law, but by faith. Uh, That word disciplinarian is pedagogos in the Greek. And in that time, in that era, the pedagogos was oftentimes a slave that was in charge of the children and would actually raise up the children, not by education, that was someone else's job, and not by the parents, they actually would hand off the child to the pedagogos, to the correctional officer, to, um, to force a morality against their more wild natural will. And so scholars would say actually a pedagogos was associated with a stick, that they were there to, to make the child conform to some sort of moral, ethical behavior, okay? So you're seeing culpable, you're seeing custodian, prisoner, you're seeing uh, correctional officer of sorts, right? And then uh, we're gonna jump backwards, but I think kind of in some, he calls it a curse. The law is a curse. And I think some of us can experience, can say, oh, I, I know what this feels like. I certainly have. Those who depend on the law to make them right with God are under his curse. For the scriptures say, cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey the commands that are written in God's book, all of the law. He's quoting from Deuteronomy. If you don't fulfill the whole law, and who can, you're under the constant guilt and shame of not having measured up. And I remember that experience when I was like five years of age where I just, I felt like I, I had to constantly confess uh, my wrongdoing to my parents. I just, it would just like a darkness would come over me. And then if I couldn't think of something, it was like my mind would try and search until I found something. There was this obsessiveness in that. I have one of my daughters who's actually struggling with that today. She had to confess something to me last night before she could feel a sense of peace. I don't want her to live that way. And I know some, some of us feel like we live under that shameful sense of never measuring up, that, that sense of feeling kind of cursed. And I know our Father in heaven doesn't want us to live that way. If I were to summarize everything that Paul said here, the seventh point would be, the law is um, uh, constructive. It's constructive. In other words, the law gives you something to compare yourself by. It exposes your incompleteness, but it leads to an inevitable conclusion, which is you can't do this by human effort. You can't do this 
by yourself. It's forging and forcing some good in us, but it was temporary. It was for a particular people. It was limited in its scope, and it's not the goal. If you're going to focus on the law, welcome to adventures of missing the point. God did not come because he wants you to capitulate to his rules. That's religion. So for however constructive or helpful it is, it's not the end goal. It's a little bit like raising our three daughters. We have three now teenage daughters, and um, uh, they're, they're four, we, we, we receive them 14 months apart from one another when they were babies. Uh, one is adopted, two are bio babies, and um, we just got them all at once. And uh, we were completely outmanned. I mean, typically when you have children in multiple, you, you, you start with man-to-man and then you move to zone. We were just right in the middle of, um, we were, yeah, it was, it was intense. So we needed a code. We needed a system by which to have some semblance of, um, of non-chaos in our home. So we devised a rock system. And uh, it kind of went like this. We said, girls... You do something good, guess what you get to do? You get to go put a rock in the jar. And they're like, really? Yes, it's so awesome. And if you do something really good, then you get to put two rocks in the jar. They're like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. And they didn't even know that there was no value behind the rocks. I mean, they were just rocks. And, uh, and, and I got to tell you, it worked. It worked. And if they did something bad, we're like, oh, you. You go take a rock out of the jar. No, you take the whole thing out of the jar, right? I mean, in those moments, it's like you're going to lose rocks. So basically, the code, as much as we didn't want to put it this way, is you're really good when the jar is full. You're like, okay, when it's half full. And again, we wouldn't use this language, but I think this is, uh, this is what it communicates. But when that jar is empty or pretty low, well, you're pretty bad. Now, for a while it worked, but um, our girls, they got smart, <laughs> and they're like, these are just rocks, Dad, <laughs> right? And our friends do this thing called allowance, right? So we, we had to adapt. What Paul is saying, though, what Paul is saying, how absurd do I want for my girls? When they go off to college, are they going to... Uh, pack up their rock jar and go, okay, I'm going to college. Do I want them counting rocks as fully grown adults? How ridiculous would that be? I mean, we're talking, this was for the ages of three through six or seven, whatever, whatever it was. And it's interesting. I've talked to my girls. I told them I'm doing this analogy, and they're like, yeah, it actually kind of worked. One daughter was like, yeah, but man, when I lost rocks, I had to pick up dog poop. It was horrible. I mean, that's all she remembered. <laughs> Not with her hands or anything. I mean, she just had to go scoop it, you know, with the scooper. But nonetheless, it had its purpose. But this must give away, Paul says, to something far better. And what, what does God want for you and for me? Does he want us just moving rocks and counting Rocks and being measured, good, okay, bad. Is this how he looks at you? Is this what he wants for you? Because do you know who moves rocks? Slaves, Paul says. Slaves. 
And so I just want to let Paul speak for a moment, and then we'll bring some summarizing um, comments to it to wrap. But I want to go back into Galatians 3, and I just want you to see uh, the heart of God through what Paul writes. And so let's just look here. We're going to read kind of three or four heavy slides. I want you just to lean in. What words pop for you? So it is clear that no one can be made right with God by trying to keep the law. It's impossible. For the scriptures say it's through, not the law, it's through faith that a righteous person has life. By the way, righteous means right relationship. Right relationship, not right conduct. It means at its core, right relationship. But Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. When he was hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. For it is written in the scriptures, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. So Jesus took on the curse so that you and I no longer need to. Through Christ Jesus, God has blessed the Gentiles. And I should have said this earlier, by the way, unless you have Jewish ancestry in your bloodline, that's you and me. This is us. This is our hope. And we're allowed the same blessing he promised to Abraham so that he, we, who are believers, might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. Let's keep reading on here. And now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the guard, the law as our guardian, our custodian, our correctional officer, right? That was for a time. For you all are children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. You're children, your sons and daughters. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ, like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. See, there was this strong sense of cultural, uh, racial identity. And there was all sorts of prejudice and racism towards anyone else. And what Paul is saying here is like, no, no matter your cultural identity, and by the way, Gentiles had their own hoops to jump through. They had their own pagan system. And Paul's going, no, look, Christ is making one new humanity. This isn't just an individual aha for the Galatians. This is a collective understanding of the heart of God for all people everywhere. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are, don't miss this word, you are his heirs. And God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. And this is how chapter 3 ends, but I can't stop. I know I wasn't assigned uh, any further, but I can't stop. It just gets so much better if we keep going into 4. Last slide. But when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. Jesus was a Jew, but God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. And because we are, you and I, because we are his sons and his daughters, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father, which means Daddy, Father. Now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. Here at Shoal Creek, we have are seven journeys. And one of those journeys is literally from earner to heir. 
See, in all the isms of religion, it's all about earning your way to God. What's Paul saying? No, 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 no. You're an heir. So how will we summarize this? Summarize it by saying, you and me, all of us together, stop counting. Counting is failing. Stop counting. Why? Because heirs don't count. Heirs don't count. Paul says, look, you're a co-heir with Christ, he says in, in a, a, another writing. You're a co-heir with Christ. And you were actually wrapped with him. You have put on Christ, the very Christ who was baptized. And when Jesus was baptized in, in the River Jordan, it said that the, the Holy Spirit, like a dove, descended. It said the skies opened up and the voice of the Father said to Jesus the Son, you are my Son, whom I love, in you I am well pleased. Hear those words. You are my son, whom I love. In you, I am well pleased. And what does Paul say here in Galatians? He says, you're like with him in baptism. You're inheriting the unconditional love of the father for the son. You're inheriting as an heir the unconditional acceptance of the father for the son. That's yours too. That's you as an heir that the father in heaven says over you because of Jesus and Christ crucified, he says to you, you are my son. You are my daughter. In you, I am well pleased. So stop counting. Heirs don't count. Secondly, in Christ, your jar is always full. Because here's the reality. The reality is that when you're playing in the code game, when you're playing against the law, when you're in the rock system and we take out rocks because you've done something bad, well, these rocks have to go somewhere. By the way, I should say that uh, my wife got on Pinterest and made it much cooler than how it looks now. It was a very, very pretty rock system. But the point still remains the same. What's Paul's point? Did Jesus crucified count for anything? Because every time that we sin, those rocks have to go somewhere. And on the cross, it says that Jesus died for our sins. And so for every single sin, past, present, and future, he took it. Does the cross of Christ count for anything? Your jar is always full. In fact, and I'll just tell you I had no intention of breaking the glass. He trades for us. He says, here, this is your jar. This is the jar we take. Your jar is always full. About three weeks ago, I was with my spiritual director. And I'm working out some things in my life, like I hope we all are. And um, towards the end of our time, he said to me, my name's Dan again, he said, he said Dan, do you... Um, 
do you ever go by the name Danny? And it really threw me because Danny was my childhood name. And um, uh, I grew out of that name, or so I thought. I didn't want to be called Danny after about the age of 12. In fact, my first email was entitled, Never Call Me Danny at Juno.com, just to give you an idea. And I, uh, but then I, in the more recent years, as I've been learning about the way of a father, I've grown more accustomed to my childhood name and to my father in heaven as Abba or as Daddy. And so actually Danny has become privately, uh, until this moment, uh, a bit of my prayer name with the Father to remind me that I'm not an earner, I'm his kid. And to the point where um, when I transitioned from my last post at the church I served, the team bought me a baseball glove, because baseball I love, and they had embossed on it just the name Danny to remind me of, of my prayer, kind of my prayer name, my childhood name, but the name that I, I want to use more and more with the Father. So my spiritual director, his name is Adam, just asked me out of the blue. He didn't know any of this. And he just says, do you, do you ever go by Danny? And so I told him all that. And he said, huh. He said, well, I was just driving over here to, to be with you and see you. And um, I was a bit rushed. And he said, so I just asked the father. I just, he just said, father, I'm meeting with Dan Diebel. Is there anything that you want to offer me that I can offer him? And Adam said, Dan, it, it, it was crazy. I've not ever heard such clarity with the voice of the Father. Because he goes, what I heard was this infectious joy of the Father's heart who said, oh, Danny. Ha, oh, Danny. And then he said, Danny has always wanted to be great. And now Danny is learning how great he is. Now, I hesitate to tell you that because that sounds like a, worse than a humble brag. But I sat with that and I thought, huh. Well, I, don't, what, I don't know what that means. It sounds good. I, I, I do. That's very true. I've always wanted to be great. But I don't know what it means that I'm learning how great I am. That was three weeks ago. Remember that errant voice text, which was about 10 days ago, so about a, a week later. I'm hitting my phone, blaming Siri. I have to head into another client meeting. It's the last place I want to be. Uh, my brain is just spinning. I call my wife, and she's like, oh, honey. She did everything that you guys did when I told you about it. She did all that. She was gracious, but you know, livelihood type things are on the line. I go into this, uh, I go into this client session, and this is not a warm, fuzzy client. This is a hard-charging client. Does not dole out compliments easily. Like them, but when you're looking for a hug, it's not who you go to. I'll just put it that way. I go into this meeting. I'm just trying to get through it. I'm barely present in it. He stops me. He says, hey, I, I want to ask you a question. Do you ever feel like you left something that you were good at so that you could be great at something else? 
I thought he was talking about him. He just started another business, you know? And I'm like, he's like, no, I'm talking about you. I said, well, what do you mean? He goes, well, I've seen you teach. You're, you know, you're a good speaker and all that. But right here, he says, like, in this session with me, you're great. I got to tell you, I didn't feel great. I felt horrible. And we asked the question earlier, how can we experience failure in such a way that it doesn't lead us to a place of blame or shame? And I'm starting to connect this dot that actually when grounded in the love and the deep heart of the Father who says, I love you, I'm for you, in whom I am well pleased, that actually it's through the failure of errant voice texts and everything that leads, yes, through my weakness, but to his greatness. I'm learning what great greatness is being redefined. If I'll just allow failure to run its rightful but grounded course in me. Not blame, not deny, not dwell, not shame, not any of those things, but to know I'm his kid. I'm, I, I am his son. I'm Danny. So I can fail extravagantly and with enthusiasm. Because nothing's up for grabs. No matter how the world's going to measure you, define you, no matter the numbers they put up against you, you have the freedom to fail extravagantly and with enthusiasm, knowing that greatness is found in Him, not in you, knowing that your jar is always full. Pray with me. So, Lord Jesus, we just ask right now your spirit to go in the places where we feel chased, haunted, even cursed by the places that we don't measure up. Holy Spirit, come into the deepest secrets. Come into the unspoken moments that have never been shared. Come into our resistances where we're, we're, we're arguing right now. We're saying, yeah, yeah, maybe that's true for, for someone else, but that's not true for me. I'm telling you, with the authority of the Scriptures upon me, that your Father in heaven has a name for you too. That your jar is always full. That if you have given your life to Jesus and traded your jar for his, rocks never come out. Your jar is always full.